Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, posting April 3, 2015, we'll be speaking with Africa expert David Stevens, founder and president of Fireside Research and a fellow of the World Policy Institute. Our topic, the danger of delay and other concerns in Nigeria's landmark vote last weekend and the continent's bumper crop of other elections this year. We'll also point out top stories in the New World Policy Journal spring issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, the March 31st deadline has come and gone, yet nuclear talks between the U.S., five other powers, and Iran continue. Here at the White House, officials claim President Obama is ready to, quote, walk away. Skeptics doubt this, given that since 2009, from the very beginning of his presidency, Mr. Obama has made some sort of reconciliation with Iran, one of his top foreign policy goals. Administration officials claim that much progress has been made, but admit differences remain on the biggest issues of all, namely the timing and range of sanctions relief, whether Iran will come clean about its past nuclear activities, and the scope of what it will be allowed to do in the future. The U.S. claims it will, quote, shut down all paths to an Iranian bomb, yet allow Tehran a year-long nuclear breakout period, which critics say is a potential path itself. And critics also ask, if Iran can't come clean about its past, how would Washington know how much time Tehran really would need if it decided to build a bomb? Meantime, as the U.S. and Iran square off at the negotiating table, their proxy war in Yemen continues. President Obama has approved the delivery of a dozen F-16 aircraft to Egypt. The warplanes had been frozen after a military-led takeover in 2013. The move comes as Egypt and Saudi Arabia step up the fight against rebels in Yemen that are backed by Iran. Egypt is also engaged in the fight against the so-called Islamic State in Libya. And finally, the White House this week is also stepping up the fight against cyber attacks, announcing that the Treasury Department will be given authority to impose economic sanctions against what it calls, quote, malicious cyber actors. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this... protest by supporters of Nigeria's President Goodluck Jonathan as vote tallies were announced in last weekend's landmark election. A controversial delay had been declared six weeks earlier with a promise that the government would finally put down the Islamist Boko Haram terrorists who threatened key areas of the country, including would-be voters, and that flaws in the country's new high-tech voter ID system would be addressed as well. Many political insiders and outside experts saw it as a stall to improve prospects for Jonathan's People's Democratic Party. It had, after all, better funding and political leverage for a lengthened campaign than the all-progressives Congress, an ironically named and ambiguously oriented opposition party led by former General Mohamedou Buhari, Nigeria's notorious military ruler, before Jonathan took office. But the delay apparently backfired. 
Boko Haram actually stepped up suicide attacks that killed or wounded hundreds in the run-up to voting and slaughtered scores more on Election Day. Millions of Nigerians, including President Jonathan and his wife, also suffered exasperating waits because of continuing problems with the voting apparatus. The election had to be extended a day in many places, and allegations of fraud and other irregularities began even before Buhari took a two-million-vote lead in the final tally. Never before had a sitting president in Nigeria not managed re-election, all of which left questions for the losers about the election's credibility and fears of violence by their supporters. Nigeria's consequential moment is the World Policy Journal blog post that previewed the voting, and the outcome for Africa's biggest population, largest economy, and greatest oil production is arguably the most important in a bumper crop of elections on the continent this year. For an overview of them all, I spoke earlier with Africa expert David Stevens, founder and president of Fireside Research and a fellow of the World Policy Institute. David Stevens, welcome to World Policy On Air. Hi, thanks for having me. Were you surprised by the outcome in Nigeria? No, I wasn't. Um, I think that watching Nigeria over the past couple of months, it was clear that there was more widespread discontentment with the PDP. Uh, Although Jonathan had been credited uh, with attempts at privatization, with um, attempts at increasing efficiency, um, and then eventually with the push uh, that we saw against Boko Haram, the sense that things had gone too far on security and that things had gone too far on corruption for the PDP to really uh, dig themselves out of that hole seemed pretty clear at that point. Um, And with the, the APC actually coming together to run a single focused campaign, uh, it seemed like a change might have been on the cards. Given the fierce passions of the race and early protest afterwards, do you see Nigeria headed for a repeat of the 2011 election aftermath when some 800 people died? And if not, why not? Um, I, I, I hesitate to say that there, I don't see any possibility of violence. I think there's always um, the possibility of some tension in a country that has had the history that Nigeria has had and that continues to have politicized ethnic tension. Um, That said, I do think that there are some very big differences between now and 2011. In particular, I feel that 2011 still had the feel that Jonathan had kind of usurped the alternation of power agreement uh, that had been in the PDP. Jonathan's predecessor, uh, when he died, Yardua, President Yardua, when he died, he was a northerner and Jonathan took over. Uh, it was assumed by many northerners then that the presidency would go back to the north in the next election. And when Jonathan ran again, I think it was seen as a betrayal of that power-sharing arrangement. And I think that fueled a lot of the tension that you saw in 2011. By the time we've come around to today, there was no sense that 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 there was uh, the betrayal of that trust anymore. Uh, It was clearly seen more as an election between two separate parties who represented uh, two separate parts of the country, two separate faiths, um, and particularly two separate views on security and how Nigeria could go forward. Uh, I'm very encouraged to see uh, Jonathan's concession as well today. I think that could do a lot to 
mitigate fears. I've spoken with some folks already who say, you know, that Americans sometimes don't realize how big of a deal that is to see a president, an incumbent, lose an election and concede the election. So hopefully that will do a lot, combined with the uh, statements from both sides promoting calm after the election to enforce that. So I'm hopeful that we won't see a repeat of 2011. Many observers found it bizarre that Buhari adopted the kind of outspokenly critical reform agenda for which he severely punished activists when he was the country's ruler. Uh, How could Nigerians forget or overlook that, or are too many voters too young to remember? Well, I think that that's a very interesting point. When Buhari was in charge in the early 80s, he was known for being particularly um, aggressive (laughs) towards Corruption, which was seen as a good thing, but also they, they talk about the war against indiscipline. You know, and often you hear stories about the Buhari government at the time having state security forces on the street enforcing queues. Uh, and I, I read, you know, enforcing the queuing culture. So his time in office was definitely seen as one that was very restrictive and oppressive. And it took a bit of convincing, I think, to get past that that image now. I think the point is a good one, that Nigeria is a very young country. And so a lot of people don't directly um, remember that experience. But at the same time, I think there are two other things that have to be considered. One is to do with what people's greatest concerns were. And for people whose greatest concerns were security and corruption, um, Buhari's somewhat draconian, some might say draconian uh, methods in, in both arenas uh, really kind of shine. So you hear stories about um, officials who, or civil servants who were late to work having to do frog jumps. Um, you know, I don't know if that's completely apocryphal, but clearly the Clearly, the, the mood was that Buhari was a very no-nonsense, things must get done by the book person. At the same time, he was known for, in I believe 1983, um, helping to repel uh, a Chadian incursion into Nigeria. So on security, he was also seen as being very no-nonsense. And if two big concerns for Nigerians today are security and corruption, then you can understand some toleration of possibly uh, a faded memory of the methods that were used. I think also at the same time it's important to look at exactly what Buhari's uh, legacy is being compared to. For many, especially in the North, the Jonathan administration's hands aren't clean when it comes to human rights abuses. Um, The attempts to subdue Boko Haram in the North uh, have led to widespread abuses by the military, by the state apparatus, um, according to many sources. Uh, And and I think that that fuels a lot of animosity. So when looking at the choice between Buhari's legacy and seeing that he's now claimed that he will work completely within the democratic sphere, and what people see as Jonathan having gotten away with a fair bit of uh, it's, it's a pretty atrocious, and the Jonathan State Security Services in particular, having gotten away with some pretty atrocious uh, behavior in the North in particular, then I think you can start to see how it, it, it gets people start weighing 
those two things. And given that Buhari's reputation was that security and corruption would be dealt with, I think that might have eased some of that concern. Some experts said the very emergence of the Buhari-led All Progressives Congress, unfocused as it may be, uh, prompted President Jonathan to perform better, uh, maybe better than the APC could do itself. I wonder what's your view on that, and what do you think Buhari actually will or can do in office? Well, I think that it's always more difficult to govern than it is to campaign, and we're about to see whether or not the APC can really go into uh, a term and have a focused, coherent governing agenda um, and can mobilize the political capital that they've earned in this election to achieve some of those things. Um, but I will say that if the creation of a viable opposition um, pushes the Jonathan or pushed the Jonathan administration to uh, perform better, I, I think that's exactly what we want to see. Um, and I think that that's a very, very good thing for Nigerian democracy, um, to have an opposition party that is strong enough to put a democratic fear into the sitting president, uh, a healthy fear of the ballot. Uh, I think that's exactly what you would want to see. In terms of what the APC can now do, I think that, or will do, I think the first thing has to be security. Uh, I think that will be what people look to most. Um, obviously, the effort against Boko Haram will be at the forefront. Um, Buhari is also, President Buhari is also going to have to figure out uh, exactly how to deal with the Niger Delta um, and the militants in that region. There was a long simmering, not simmering, but often open insurgency uh, in the Niger Delta that only kind of slowed down after a ceasefire uh, under President Yardua. President Jonathan was seen as having continued that often by allowing kind of concessions to uh, the leaders of some of those militant groups who had expressed their concern that should Jonathan or their, their feeling that if Jonathan lost, they would have to take arms again. So President, uh, President Buhari is really going to have to do a lot to make sure that the Niger Delta doesn't reignite at the same time that he uh, addresses the Boko Haram threat. Uh, I've heard some people say that militants in the Delta are likely to give a Buhari administration uh, a little bit of time to see if he continues with the uh, payments and with the amnesties, uh, with the job programs um, that are supposed to be happening. So it might not be an immediate response, but I think they will, they will be definitely watching very closely. Uh, and, you know, I think that's the, those two security issues are going to have to be first and foremost. Then I think he's going to have to tackle some element of corruption head on. Uh, I, I, I don't, my feeling is that he can't walk right in and just say, okay, everything stops today. Um, I think that too much of Nigerian politics is already uh, very personal, is already very, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. And I, I don't think that that kind of political culture can necessarily be swept away immediately. But I do think some visible um, efforts to stem corruption at 
the highest levels all the way down through the administration uh, are going, or all the way down through the public service are going to have to be, are going to also have to be uh, at the forefront of Buhari's efforts. Let's look at some of the other big African elections this year, starting in May with Ethiopia, where there's nowhere near uh, the hot contest we saw in Nigeria. What should we know? Well, I think Ethiopia's election is, I, I don't want to say a foregone conclusion, but it's basically a foregone conclusion. Um, I think that what you have to look at when you look at Ethiopia, the governing party, the Ethiopia People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, has been in power since 1991. And at the moment, there's exactly one opposition party in a uh, national legislature that's over 500 people. So you're not looking at a country that's really going to have a big opposition push. Uh, There have already been complaints that the opposition is having a hard time registering. And, of course, when you speak about Ethiopia, you have to speak about issues to do with press freedoms, uh, issues to do with uh, freedom of speech. You know, Freedom House ranks Ethiopia straight off uh, that not free. And I I think that's really sort of where you have to start. That said, with 10.9% average growth over the last decade, nobody's really challenging uh, Ethiopia's closed system. Uh, You still see investment looking to enter. Uh, I just read a quick headline that I believe said Bob Geldorf is looking to lead the private equity push into Ethiopia, and obviously he has a a long connection with the country. But because of its strategic importance as a stable country in a a rough neighborhood, um, because of its growth and the potential that people see in the economy, um, it's unclear that anybody's going to mind too much. And by anybody, I mean sort of international actors are going to mind too much that this election won't be terribly free, won't be terribly fair, and will more or less be a foregone conclusion. Another key election is expected in the Central African Republic, CAR, in August, but with no specific date yet set. It's been called, quote, a desperate attempt to turn around the political crisis. Talk about that. Uh, The Central African Republic has truly been one of the tragic stories um, of Africa over the past couple of years. And I, I don't see the planned elections there changing much in that regard. Uh, I think that there, there are still areas that are controlled um, by the uh, anti-Blaca and by the Seleka groups. Um, and it's unclear that they're allowing uh, the National Election Assembly to set up offices and to do the things that they need to do to make this election happen. Voter registration is behind schedule. Security is an issue. Candidates are afraid of campaigning in certain regions. Official documents aren't where they need to be. There's a lack of officials in certain areas. So it's very, it's very difficult to see exactly how this election is going to come off um, and is going to come off in a way that's meaningful. That said, uh, there is something to having the election. You're never going to have the perfect environment sometimes. And it, it is sometimes it's just important to get to do the election, but given the lack of funds available, given the problems that already exist, it's very difficult for me to see the Central African Republic um, really had a meaningful election this year. October will see the first election in Guinea since 2010. What's the dynamic there? 
Well, Guinea is a, is a very, very interesting case. Unfortunately, I think when you, when you talk about Guinea, you're, you're almost immediately, you, you have to talk about Ebola right now. And the Ebola crisis in Guinea, I think, really brought a lot of the conversation to a halt. Even now, there's still 90, over 95 new cases a week. Um, with 10,000 lives having been lost in the region. So, so I think that any movement towards elections has to be thought of with that lens. That said, there are some other very real issues. I think the first being that, you know, again, preparation is an issue. Uh, obviously, with the country having sort of shut down for Ebola, that, that continued. But there are also issues in terms of legislative hurdles, in terms of it's unclear exactly which constitutional uh, rules get followed, whether the 2010 uh, Constitution gets followed to the law or other political agreements um, are used. Uh, the International Crisis Group, I think, noted that uh, there's no coherent legislative framework that inspires confidence, where I think there were. And I think that says a lot about whether Guinea is prepared to have this election. At the same time, Alpha Conde, the uh, current president, is, or the incumbent, is facing a divided opposition. And while the opposition parties, the UFDG and the UFR, have worked together in the past, particularly uh, in legislative elections, it's unclear whether the capture of the presidency and, and all that comes with that will make it more difficult for them to cooperate, particularly when you, when you start to look at the mining industry um, in Guinea. And I, I think that's the other thing you need to, to talk about when you think about Guinea. Right now, Guinea has massive iron reserves, and the contracts to explore and to extract or to, to mine that iron very, very valuable, uh, upwards of $20 billion. That's created some very complicated politics and business involving external actors from a number of countries, major corporations, Rio Tinto. So I think that the opposition's already accusing Conde of, of wanting to stall in order to be able to kind of extract further benefit from negotiating these agreements. Um, so I, I think the capture of the presidency comes with so much there. It's hard to see the opposition really working together. Um, and then once you add to that uh, Ebola and add to that the legislative hurdles, the election in Guinea uh, could be quite tricky. What's your overall impression of elections in Africa this year and the state of democratic institutions so necessary to make them meaningful after all the votes are tallied? I'm very optimistic about what I've seen um, from not just this year, not just coming up in 2015. Obviously, we don't know exactly how everything's going to shake out, but also from the elections that we had uh, in 2014, where we had another bumper crop of elections. But when you saw South Africa and Mozambique and Malawi and Botswana and Namibia uh, all have successful elections. Um, and I think that there's a very good push towards entrenched electoral politics in Africa. The issue becomes whether or not that entrenched electoral politics is, is sort of more for show or becomes more meaningful. Um, I'm encouraged by countries I mean, like Nigeria is a great example where opposition politics seem to really be taking hold, where uh, that contestation of ideas between the incumbents and the opposition 
really becomes meaningful. Uh, I think Tanzania, you might see something very similar. In South Africa, you might continue to see that. Countries like Botswana, uh, Namibia, you've seen that less because the incumbent parties have been so popular. But to the extent that that's continuing, I'm very positive um, on Africa, or African elections. At the same time, even to the extent that other countries aren't quite getting to that point where you have a contest between an opposition and between incumbents, the stability of elections, the idea that you don't always have to worry that things will go well, as I think people had in the past, um, that elections can become routine, uh, is a great step forward um, and is something that I hope will herald kind of a continuation um, of African democratization and of African democratic consolidation. David Stevens, thank you. Thank you very much. Africa expert David Stevens is founder and president of Fireside Research and a fellow of the World Policy Institute. We've been discussing the article's Nigeria's Consequential Moment and your guide to Africa's elections, posted at www.worldpolicy.org blog. Featured in the new spring 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find articles on the weakness of conventional wisdom in predicting the unknown, on the future of Islam and Islam in our future, and on a new world of tax havens challenging national revenue services and the economies they serve. Plus, tune into next week's podcast as we talk with British journalist and author Nicholas Jubber about his new World Policy Journal book, Abandoned, Life for Mali's Nomads in the Wake of War. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>